So the topic uh, that we started last week is trials. We spoke to trials. Uh, everyone has trials. Um, and just to be clear, when, when uh, our um, scripture here today translates trials in my translation, some of your translations may say temptations. Um, other places, that same Greek word is translated affliction. Some places translated as a test. But what it means in the Greek and what all those actually means is to put to a proof. It's something that proves who you are. Okay, so we have to keep that in mind as we're reading that as well. And I mentioned uh, also last week that um, before I started kind of trials purposes. And I mentioned kind of eight different purposes that scripture tells us that God uses these trials for in a believer's life. And I'll just go over them briefly because they're kind of the background again to what James tells us here uh, in his scripture as well. Number one, trials will test the strength of our faith. Trials are a test. That word itself means to prove, to prove, to prove who you are. It's a test. It's a test. Number two, trials will humble us. Trials will humble us. We made the example of Paul's thorn in the side. That was a trial given to him by God so he would not become conceited because of his revelations. But trials humble us. They humble us. Number three, trials wean us from our dependence on worldly things. They wean us from the things of the world to the things of God. Number four, they call us to an eternal and a heavenly hope. And we mentioned as trials get more and more difficult, we tend to cry out and look more and more forward to heaven and what is next and less about what's in this world. Number five, trials reveal what you truly love or who you truly love. And we gave the example there of Abraham. God placed him through a trial to sacrifice his only son. Abraham passed that trial. Abraham passed that trial. He proved that he really loved God more than anything else. Number six, trials teach us to value God's blessings. Over all the material things in this world, we understand that through trials, none of those material things matter, only God's blessings that he's, he promises us. Number seven, trials develop enduring strength for greater usefulness to God. Uh, Paul gave that example in, in 2 Corinthians that we've talked about, that he, he was placed through those trials and God comforted him in those trials so that now he could comfort others in those trials as well, being greater useful to God. And number eight, uh, again, similar to number seven, to enable us to better help others in their trials as well. God teaches us through trials, enables us through trials, strengthens us through trials so that we may help others as well. And those are just eight of many purposes that God has in trials. You could certainly find more on your own as well. And then we started last time is in this passage of scripture by James, who is speaking again to Jewish Christians of the dispersion. Jewish Christians, those that have professed Christ of the Jewish race, but now because of persecution are dispersed outside of the homeland. Um, five things that are necessary to weather the trials as a Christian. Five things that we need to prove the genuineness of our faith during times of trial. 
And let me just I'll give them to you at the beginning, then we'll kind of go over them one at a time. Number one, a joyful attitude. We kind of started that last time. Number two, an understanding mind. You need to understand the purpose of the trial. You need to understand what's happening in the trial. That gives us knowledge. That gives us the ability to weather that trial better than if you're in the dark about what's going on. Number three, you need to submit to that trial. You need to have a submissive attitude. You need to let that trial do what God intended that trial to do in your life. Number four, you need to have an, a believing heart. A believing heart. You need to have true faith. And that's a big one as well. And number four, you need to have a humble, or number five, you need to have a humble spirit. A humble spirit. So let's start with, again, joyful attitude. As we, we spoke about this last time as well. The uh, idea there when in verse 2 where he says, consider, consider it all joy, my brothers, or count it all joy. Some of your translators will say consider it all joy. We considered that word consider, which means to not only consider the effect of that trial now, but consider what that effect will have in the future. So when you really consider something, you're not only considering you know, who you're going to marry now, but what that's going to look like in the future. When you consider buying a house now, not only how that's going to affect your finances now, but how's that going to affect your finances in the future. So when you consider a trial, you consider it all joy. And that's a command. He says, all joy, consider it all joy. And that's not the human, normal, natural response to a trial is not joy. Say, you have to consider what that, what that trial is doing in your life. And we gave the example of that in, in, that Jesus in, in Hebrews chapter 2, where, where the, the writer of Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So we have to keep our sights. We have to keep this, this attitude of joy, even though while well, in the midst of trial, you know, you're not going to have that joy. Trials are difficult. Trials are difficult at the time, but to keep a joyous attitude knowing what that trial is producing in you is very important when you're going through a trial as well. And if you consider Joseph, um, you know, the things that happened to him, uh, he never once uh, pitied himself. He never once felt sorry for himself, even when his brothers threw him in the pit and then the the baker, you know, remember he said the baker was going to let him out when he told him what his dream meant. Well, he didn't do that either. Well, he never once whined about that as well. And then at the very end, you know, in, in, uh, he, when he reveals himself to his brothers, he, he says, you know, well, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph had that idea, that joyful attitude that something good is going to come out of that because he understood, uh, he understood God. He had a true faith in God as well. And there's only one way that Romans 8.28 can really be effective is if we understand that God is a sovereign God and all things work to our good for those who love him. We got to remember that. That's a, that's a very, very strong verse. It's not just a platitude. It's really backed in the theology of the, um, of the Bible as well. And then we talked about Job. Job had a, an attitude like that as well, too. He could look forward uh, through the most horrible trials you can probably imagine. Uh, and he said in, in verse 20, in chapter 23, verse 10, but I know the way I, but he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, 
I shall come out as gold. He could look through the trial and keep an attitude of joy, knowing that joy was at the end of that trial. But not so for a non-Christian, one who does not have faith in God, one who does not look through to what this trial is producing him, only gets stuck in the trial themselves. There's nothing but the trial that he's going through. And it's a, it's a deep place to be and a difficult one to get out of for a non-Christian. But as Christians, we have that to look forward to as well. So we must keep a joyful attitude. And it's not one of just, you know, smiling all the time and faking it. It's an attitude deep down knowing what that, that uh, trial is producing in us as well. And number two, then we need to have an understanding mind. This is, this is very important. We need to know. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some of your translations, patient endurance. It produces patience, endurance. But you know, I want you to focus on that word know. You know that the testing of your faith. You know when you know things, when you have knowledge of what is happening in that trial, you are better able to deal with that trial. If you think it's just a random act, you're going to be confused and have a difficult time. But if you know, you can evaluate the trial. You can look forward like what uh, James says here, that the testing is going to produce something in me. It's going to produce patient endurance. It's going to produce steadfastness in me. So knowing that helps you go through that trial as well. And so, so what do I need to know? That's kind of a general thing, knowing that this trial is going to make me more patient, more enduring, more steadfast. But let's kind of break that down. Let's get a little more specific here. Um, what else do I need to know about that? Well, I need to know that, number one, in this trial, I need to know God is allowing that trial. Okay? This is not something that Satan somehow got the better of God in. This is not something that is just random that happened to me. But we have to know that God is the one that allowed that trial in us. You know, some uh, liberal theologians actually actually think that God is, is kind of evolving and getting to be a better God, uh, which is really strange to me as well. Um, but, uh, but we understand that God is immutable. He's, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And if we understand that he is a sovereign God, unchanging, immutable, and he is allowing this in us, then we're not going to get caught in the uh, thing that, you know, like Satan's, Satan's at odds with God. We, we talked about that a little bit in Sunday school. We understand theologically that, that Satan and God are not equals. It's not some kind of cosmic battle between good and evil, uh, like in Star Wars, good and evil. You know, it's, it's no, you know, there's God. And then there's this created being, Satan, down here, who uh, is none other than a servant of God and can only do what God allows him to do. You know, the book of Job tells us that so clearly that Satan cannot do anything other than what God allows him to do. So you have to understand that and know that as you're going through a trial, not wondering, is Satan going to get the best of me in this trial? Is this going to be bad? Satan cannot thwart God's purposes in any type of trial. You've got you to know that. You've got to have an understanding mind to know that. So, and you must know that whatever test you're going through, it's specifically designed for you. 
Okay, not for me, but for you. Okay, and through that test, God has strengthened you, making you more steadfast, giving you patient endurance. So what else do I need to know when I'm going through this trial? Well, not only need to know that, that it's producing something in me, not only do I need to know that God is allowing that trial, uh, but I need to know that as I'm going through that trial, that not, God will never allow me or put me in a position to have more than I can handle. He'll never give me more than I can chew, I guess is best and put in the vernacular as well. And that promise is given in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where Paul states this. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And that word temptation, same word, trial, to put to the proof, whatever it is, that trial you're going through. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He will never put you through something that he will not give you the strength to get out of it. So that gives us confidence in a God that in a trial, um, we understand it's producing something in us, steadfast. We know that God is allowing us, and we know that God will not give us more than we can handle. That gives us confidence to get through a trial, I would say, quite well. And so you can get to the point, you know, some people, a lot of people blame Satan for trials. And, you know, never do that. Never do that. I mean, God is the one allowing it. God allows Satan to do certain things. But God is only, I mean, but Satan is only the instrument of God in that particular trial to produce something in you that is beneficial to you. All things work together for good as well. So Satan can do nothing that stops God. An example of that, again, is Paul's thorn in the flesh. I hate to use that all the time, but, you know, Paul described that thorn in the flesh as a messenger from Satan, didn't he? But who did he pray to to remove it? Prayed to God because he understood God was allowing Satan to afflict him in that way as well. So Satan is only God's agent in certain trials. All right, so what else do we need? We need to, another thing, submissiveness. We need to submit to the trial that we're going through. Look in verse 4. It says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let it happen. You know, don't fight against it. Uh, let it do what it's supposed to do. We've already mentioned that it's producing something in you. So, so let God, let the trial do what it's going to do. Do not fight against it. It's, it. That attitude of submissiveness is, is similar to what the psalmist said in, in Psalm 131, a very short psalm, only three verses. But he said something, the psalmist said this, he says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. He's kind of saying, I'm just kind of a regular guy. I don't understand everything, as we do not understand everything when we're going through trials. We don't get it all when we're going through it. But in verse 2, he said, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So he's kind of saying, you just kind of let it happen. You crawl up there, 
with your mom, with God. Let it happen, understanding that it's going to produce something in you as well. Let it happen. And Psalm 37 says something very similar to that. When It, it says, trust in the Lord. Uh, in verse 3, it says, trust in the Lord. Verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Verse 6, and he will bring forth your righteousness as light. And verse 7, be still before the Lord. You need to let that trial have its full effect. That full effect. And what is that full effect in verse 4? It says that you may be perfect and complete. Now, it doesn't mean per sinless perfection. Sometimes we look at that word perfect and we think it means really perfect. Sinless perfection doesn't mean that, okay? It's the word teleon. It just means maturity or completeness as well. So that trial, if you submit to it and let it do what it's going to do to you, it will make you complete. It will mature you in the faith, lacking nothing. That's the idea of there being submissive. So, and so in purpose, in when going through trials, we don't continue to ask why, 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 why me? What's going on here? Uh, no, we ask, we submit to it, and we ask, okay, Christ, or okay, God, how, how is this making me more and more? Christ-like. That's how we can submit to the trials. We ask, we allow it to happen to us. And then next, the next that is necessary to get through trials uh, is verses 5 through 8. And titled it a believing heart, but look how James kind of, kind of uh, leads into that there. In verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, okay, well, uh, so if you're in the midst of a trial and you're kind of finding it hard to stay joyful in that trial and you're kind of trying to understand what's going on there and you're, you're trying to be submissive to it because you know it's from God, but, but you just don't get it. You just don't understand what's going on. Um, yeah, you, you say, I just don't have that. I'm, I'm not like Job. I don't have that insight that Job had. I'm not like Abraham that has that rock-solid faith. What do I need? He says, you need wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, and I'll guarantee you, when we're going through trials, we all lack wisdom. None of us knows exactly what's happening in that trial. None of us knows exactly the outcome, the final earthly outcome of that trial as well. We know inside, spiritually, it is making us better, okay? And ultimately, it's for our joy and our good. But in the midst of it, we, we do not have the wisdom needed. So he says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, uh, what do we do? We ask God. Now, first of all, we need to understand wisdom because there are more than one kind of wisdom. There is godly wisdom, which we read in the Psalms and the Proverbs. Then there's the earthly wisdom, which Solomon made very clear in Ecclesiastes. And, and what did, was his determining, what did he say at the end of that? It, it's all vanity, Okay. So there's wisdom that comes from God. There's wisdom that comes from the world. And wisdom really, uh, a definition, a simple definition would be um, that it's understanding the issues of life and how to deal with them. That's kind of what the Hebrews considered wisdom. Okay. The Greeks, on the other hand, you know, they were more into philosophy and uh, just trying to hear something new. If you remember in Acts 17, when Paul 
Paul said, and it's all the multiple gods that they were having. They're all just talking about things. He said they all met there just to hear something new. You know, that's something new. They have a God for this and a God for that. And then just to make sure I got them all, there's this unknown God over here. And so Paul said, let me tell you about that unknown God to you. Unknown to you, but it's known to me. So their, their idea of philosophy, I mean, their idea of wisdom, the Greeks' idea of wisdom is very much like the world's idea of wisdom. Uh, so like them, like today, when we go through trials, sometimes we rely on earthly wisdom, such as things like psychology, um, psychiatry. You know, you say, I can't figure this out. This is killing me. I need to go tell somebody why it's happening to me. And they give you their earthly wisdom on that. Sometimes we, we just look at our horoscope. Well, that's going to tell me what's going to happen next thing. Or call 1-800-what's-my-future. I mean, there's a lot of things in this earth that we turn to in times of trial that are probably worse than worthless. They're probably on the other end of that as well. But wisdom is really at a premium during trials. To have the wisdom of God in time of trials something you need. And that's why James brings it up here as well. So we got to know where do we find wisdom. Well, if you would, turn with me to Job. Um, Job gives a good uh, uh, kind of synopsis. Job chapter 28, starting in verse 12, um, Job says this, But where shall wisdom be found? Hmm. And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. In other words, man has no idea how valuable wisdom is. And it's not found in the land of the living. Hmm. So you cannot find it here on earth at all. And he goes on to speak more about it. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. So you can go down to the depths of the sea. You can look anywhere on this earth you want. You're not going to find wisdom as well. And then in verses 15 through 19, he, he speaks of the fact that, there, that it is priceless. There is nothing that you can't buy it from anything on this earth. Verse 15, it cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, Ophir in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of the coral of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. And then in verse 20 goes, from where then does wisdom come and where is the place of understanding? And he finishes it by saying, it's hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Again, it's not found on the earth or even in the, where the birds, the, the first heaven, in the air as well. Can't get it from there. And then he goes to the spiritual realm. And Abaddon and Death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. But verse 23, God understands the way to it. And he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned by the waters his measures, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. So when he created everything, 
in verse 27, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So we can't find it anywhere on this earth. It only comes from above. And James, even later in, the, in chapter 3, he, he calls it the wisdom from above because that's where it comes from. That's the wisdom that we seek in trials, not the wisdom of the earth that we had spoke about as well. It's not available from any human source. It, it, it emanates. It, it comes from God. That's where it comes from. So now you're asking yourself, well, how do I get that? Well, it says, ask God. That's pretty simple. Okay. That's a command. That's a command. Ask God. So, so when you consider what's happening here, you're in the midst of a trial. Can't figure out what's going on. You're trying to keep a joyful head. You're trying to be submissive. You're trying to understand. Uh, but you don't know what you need to know from God to get out of this trial. He says, ask God. So he brings you to this trial to make you rely more on him. To make you ask him what's going on that that is what he's that is his purpose here um because when everything's going well and you're not in a trial uh you kind of lose that dependence on god i mean you know things are going well and you know i don't need to pray you know i'm just going to kind of let it slide i don't want to rock the boat you know i'm doing pretty good i'm doing pretty good you know but then a trial comes along and things change is right and God warned Israel that. God warned Israel before they, he went into the promised land. He says, what you're going to get in there and you're going to partake of the fruit of the land and you're going you're gonna to essentially forget me. You're going to start relying on yourselves. And sure enough, they did. And they began worshiping other gods and doing all the things God told them not to do because they thought that's what they wanted to do. That's kind of what they did. That's what we all do. So when we ask God then... Um, how does he give it to us? Okay, we don't have to go, you know, beating down the door for it. No, he goes, he gives generously, generously, and to all without reproach. Without reproach. So he gives generously. What, is, what, what does without reproach mean? Um, probably the best example of that is, is in those of us who are parents here, and, and our child comes asking us for something and we know they need it, but they hadn't been real good. They hadn't been real obedient. And so you, you give it to them, but, you know, you kind of let them know they hadn't been very obedient. You give them to them grudgingly, you know, with hesitation. Okay. But that's not the way God gives when we ask him. No, he gives it generously and to all and without reproach, and it will be given him. So what he's telling us is he is going to supply all the wisdom we need. He's going to supply everything we need to deal with these trials and to develop our strength and our steadfastness through him without reproach. He does not give them hesitatingly. But then we get to verse 6. He says, but let him ask in faith without doubting. Hmm. So what does he mean for that? So if, we, if we're going through life and we're, we lack this wisdom 
to help us with the trials that we're trying to deal with. Um, there's no shortage of wisdom with God, right? I mean, he's, he's got it all, and he's willing to give it to us, right? But James says here we must ask in faith without doubting. So what does that mean, without doubting? Does that mean you just have to, you know, just kind of make your mind go set and never doubt anything going on? No, he, he's really saying this. He, he's, he's simply saying uh, you must ask with true faith, with true faith. And it's not just the faith that, uh, that we have that we acknowledge that God is who he is and that God, we don't doubt that God's able to help us in this trial. Okay, we can, we can concede that still on an intellectual level, okay? But what if he, what if the wisdom he gives us is not the answer we want? Okay, now we begin to doubt. Okay, we begin to doubt his wisdom, and, and maybe we look more towards the world's answer to my trial as well. So when he says without doubting, it, he says without doubting, you don't debate God, um, you don't dispute with him, you don't waver. So true faith is, is not just an intellectual idea that, yeah, I believe in God, uh, I believe he is who he says he is, but true faith is really a commitment to obey God, to obey what he says, to obey when he gives me this wisdom, I obey that. That's a true faith. I'm going to follow that wisdom as well. But if I'm doubting, if I'm doubt, you know, God, if, if I, I don't like his answer, you know, and I want to go my own way, I'm going to, I'm going to dispute with him. I'm going to, I'm going to debate with him. I'm going to doubt God. And that's what he's saying here. He's, you know, he's saying it's, that the true believing heart always acknowledges that, that God is our Savior. Um, he's sovereign. He's Father. He loves his children. He's going to give all the needs that his children need to get through any situation as well. And you never doubt that. You never doubt that. So, but he may give you an answer during trials that you don't like, that you don't like. Um, so the faith we're talking about here, you know, Jesus talked about just the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. Okay, well, that moving mountains is, is really a, a, a metaphor for uh, doing difficult things. So even a little bit of faith, if it's true faith, is going to help you in a time of trial. Because you're not going to doubt what God tells you. You're gonna, you've made a commitment to obey what he tells you as well. And that is the way we handle trials as children of God. That is where we are, where we are proofed. It proves who we are as well, too. So, but one who has doubts, then again, continuing in verse 6, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. All right, so what is a wave in the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind? Does it ever get anywhere? I mean, it's kind of back and forth. It kind of goes here and there. And what he really is talking about here is you're, you're, this is the person that is caught between two opinions, you know, the world and God. I mean, he, he's kind of on the edge. He, he's riding the fence. You know, uh, it's like those that, uh, if you recall in, in, in 1 Kings 18, I think he wrote down here, when Elijah, who thought he was the only prophet of God, left, uh, and the wicked Ahab as well, 
when he challenged the prophets of Baal to that thing. Before he did that, he brought all of Israel together. And he said this, he said, and Elijah came near to all his people. He says, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And you know what the people did? They didn't answer him a word. They were caught between two different opinions at that particular point in time. Or like in, 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 in Corinthians chapter 10, when Paul talks about those at the, at the church in Corinth um, that were coming out of their pagan uh, practices, you know, some of them would still go back and practice and go to the pagan temples and worship with them and eat the food sacrificed to idols. And then they'd come back to the Corinthian church and take communion with God. You know, you know, you can't, uh, he said to them, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You know, it's, you cannot partake. You cannot, you're caught between two things. You need to choose one or the other. And, or the church at Laodicea described as lukewarm. I mean, they, they, they didn't, they didn't take sides. They were lukewarm as well. And then the, the famous verse in Joshua, as you recall, choose whom this day you will serve. As you recall, right before that, he gave them three choices. He goes, either the gods of, of the fathers that they worshipped in the land, or the gods of the Amorites whose land you're living in now, or the Lord God. Choose your day. So they were kind of wavering as well. But that's what he's talking about. If you're, if you're like a wave tossed in the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, you have no real faith. You're caught between two things. Two, two things, the Lord and the world, is basically what it boils down to. And he says that person... Verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Hmm. He is a double-minded man. He is unstable in all his ways. So he's not going to expect anything. Double-minded, that Greek word means two-souled. He has a soul, a bad one, and a good one. Okay, And he can't figure out which one he wants to do as well. So he's divided between God and the world. And we know you can't do that because... Uh, John tells us in 1 John not to love the world or the things in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Okay. And James later in chapter 4 will, will say this. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You cannot do both. You cannot be two-souled uh, and then unstable in all his ways. That's that's used other places in scripture, and it, and it typically uh, denotes a spiritual condition that's unsaved, that's outside the kingdom, unstable in all your ways. Um, no true loyalty or trust in God. Uh, these people that are double, that are uh, double-minded, they're, 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 in, oh yeah, in, a, um, in a Pilgrim's Progress. This type of person is Mr. Facing Both Ways. That's his name, Mr. Facing Both Ways. So you can kind of get the idea of what he's talking about. So they have no true loyalty to God. They have no true trust in God. Um, they will follow philosophy of the world that they think it might be better for them and problems instead of God's wisdom. Um, they just vacillate between it. That's what they are. And that person should not expect anything from God or any wisdom from God. 
So that's what he's talking about, a believing heart, a true believing heart, one that, that truly um, has faith in God and has that commitment to obey the wisdom God's going to give him as well. That's a true believing heart. And then finally, you need to have a humble spirit, a humble spirit. And we'll go um, now in verses 9 through 11. It, it, it seems a little bit random that he puts it in there, but, it, but it's really not. I think we'll, we'll kind of figure out what James is trying to teach us here. Uh, how we need to be humble in spirit. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man boast in his humiliation. So what's he talking about there? Uh, lowly, typically lowly, it's a kind of a, almost a play on the word humble or lowly. The word for lowly and the word for humiliation is really the same word, just in a different form. But it denotes, you know, humbleness, lowly, uh, without. Um, and in, as you can picture his audience, James' audience of all these Jewish Christians that have been dispersed, as you recall, they would be of a low socioeconomic uh, level because of their Christian faith. So they were once Jews, part of the synagogue. That's their community. Most of their business would would, you know, come from that, would emanate from that. They profess Christ. They kick them out of the synagogue. Then they begin to get persecuted. So now they're driving them somewhere else outside the, you know, the promised land now. So they set up now with a place where there may already be some dispersed Jews in the synagogue there, but they're not going to have anything to do with them either because they're Christians. The Gentiles aren't going to have anything to do with them either. So they're kind of stuck. They're going to be of a low socioeconomic value. And that's who he, he's speaking to here. They accept that. They accept that because of the exaltation they have in Christ. They understand basically that um, you accept it, that this is just a short-lived trial, okay, that, um, uh, that their joy is not in this world but their joy will be in the exaltation of Christ. So they may be, they may be without food and water now, but, but they've got the bread of life and the water of life in Christ. You know, it's, it's, it's not now. They understand that. And so they will boast, which is a, a good boast in Christ as well too. But the rich have a different problem, okay? They, most rich people worry about someone taking their riches away from them. Okay, that, that's kind of what they're worried about, losing those riches. So, so when it says, let a rich man boast in his humiliation. So let a rich man, so a, a, a rich man who then becomes Christ and in, in the, or then becomes a Christian will now not boast in his riches, okay, or not even boast in the providence of God that gave him those riches, but he's going to boast when those riches are taken away. He understands now that everything he has is temporal, that it's, it's short-lived. Just like the lowly person understands that his trials are a short-lived trial in this life, the rich man now understands that these riches are short-lived. It's only temporary. It's only what happens on this, on this earth as well. He understands now they have no spiritual benefit. They have no lasting benefit as well. So now he can boast if those are taken away from them. And many times, 
rich people becoming Christians would be persecuted as well. Um, most of them would share their riches with those of the early church as well because now they understand those riches are not something to be protected and hoarded on this earth, not something to build bigger barns to store them in, but there's something to be used on earth, but they're only going to be used on earth. You're not going to take them with you as well. So the rich man now will boast in his humiliation. So they both have developed now a humble spirit. And so in the early church, you know, James is saying here, you know, there's going to be rich and poor. Um, you know, most of them were poor because he said not many were mighty, not many were noble. Uh, but there's going to be a, uh, there's going to be both as well. And so although the, the world separates rich and poor, the church brings them together brings them together because they're no different in Christ. All are on the same level as Christ. And all, if they are truly Christians, will believe that, will, be, will believe that, that the rich people, that their riches are not something to be hoarded, but something to be shared and something that is temporal. And the, the poor people will, will, again, boast in their exaltation in Christ as well, as we all do. So we must have a humble spirit because that helps us deal with it. And just to emphasize uh, the, in verses uh, uh, 10 through 11, James just emphasizes the, um, the temporal nature of everything, really, of everything. Because um, like a flower in the grass, he will pass away. Okay, rich man understands that. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. The flower falls, his beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. So if he's continuing to pursue riches, he's just going to die right in the middle of that. And die right in the middle of that. So, so now the rich man boasts in his humbleness, his humiliation as well. He understands now that everything he has is not his, number one. Number two, he's a steward of it. It came from God. Number three, God gave him the ability to make those riches as well, okay? And he understands that they could be gone in a moment's notice as well. So he does not boast in his riches anymore as well, too. They're all temporary. So trials cannot take away our joy at all. As a matter of fact, they can only increase it, okay? When you consider everything we've talked about today... You know, and for Romans 8, 28, um, all things work together. Those include trials as well for, for our good. So we have, to, we have to sit in that. So, so then trials then become a test of who we are. They become a proof of the genuineness of our faith. So whether that trial would be, you know, loss of a job, a financial disaster, a, um, a loss of a loved one, um, a spouse committing adultery on you, a child with a handicap, um, no matter what it is, that trial is placed there, and as a trial of God, it is making you stronger and making you better. And then the final result of that in verse 12, as a child, and this is all to the child of God who goes through trials, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love them. 
Blessed is the man. Sounds like one of the Beatitudes. And I think, you know, blessed are the meek. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you remember in, the, in those Beatitudes, that's, that's uh, Jesus' describing who's in the kingdom and who's not in the kingdom. So when, when James here says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, well, he's describing a man that's in the kingdom as well. Um, and, uh, and the crown, the crown of glory. Crown just means glory, something that uh, denotes kingship rulers. And, and so we are going to get a crown of glory uh, when we are with Christ, right? Because we're going to rule with him. We'll be kings with him. And not that perishable crown like, like Paul talks about in, in Corinthians that is temporal, but an eternal crown as well. And we also have to remember this, is that we receive the crown of life. We don't earn the crown of life. And getting through the, and, and passing this test doesn't get you the crown of life. No, it is a gift of God, a gift of his own grace that he gives to us when we are with him. And he promises that to, that God has promised to those who love him. Uh, God who cannot lie, God who cannot deceive us, God who is always faithful, promises that us. And all his yes are found in Christ, as we talked about in Sunday school last week. So, so how do we, and it is promised to those who love him. So one way we prove or manifest that love that we have for him is how we handle trials. It's how we go through those trials. Do we trust in him? Do we uh, trust in his word? Do we trust in his sovereign nature? Do we understand that he's, gonna, he's not going to give us more than we can handle? We're going to get through it. We keep a, a humble spirit as well. Um, that's one way we manifest the love of God. But also that love of God uh, is something that, that he first loved us. And he demonstrated that love to us by the sending of his son. And that love was, was so uh, immense, I guess that's a, that probably doesn't even describe it as well, that, uh, that, that Christ came and died. He died for our sins. And that is how God showed us his love as well. And if we are willing to repent and believe that God is who he says he is and sent Jesus and he is who he says he is and turn from our sins and repent and believe, you know, he says your life will never be the same. <laughs> it will never be the same. And upon completion of it, you will have this crown of glory as well. Um, one final verse in Second uh, Timothy. Paul says this to Second Timothy. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All those who love him. All those who eagerly await him. That's the difference. You can say you love God. Uh, but, you know, there's only two things. These you love God or you hate God. You can't, you're not in the middle where you say, oh, I just hadn't made up my mind yet. Not sure I love him. No, you're on the hate side over there. Okay. If you love God, you eagerly await him coming back, don't you? You eagerly await the next life. Okay, you don't get caught up in the things of the world and the trials of this world, although they seem horrible at the time. You know, we've got that to look forward to as well for those who love him. So trials are important. Trials show the genuineness of our faith, 
but the Lord will bring his children through those trials and make them stronger for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time you've given us that we could explore your word. We thank you that you have so clearly made it uh, a point that trials are not something to be feared, maybe even something to look forward to, something that we know is making us stronger and more and more Christ-like. Dear Lord, we pray, and we, if we lack the wisdom we need to go through it, we will ask you and we will be obedient to what your answer is as well for that, dear Lord. Therefore, thank you for this time. In your son's name, amen.